Morning. How are we? I hope you guys are doing good today. We're closing out this series called How We Got Here. And the first week, I think we started like 2,000 years. The second week, uh, I believe it was, what, 70 years or so. Then the week after that, which was last week, we talked about a history of Casas and how this church even just became what it is. And that was about a 60-year window. Today, we're going to look at a 20-year window of time here with me. Uh, but I want to start by actually jumping to something that happened 10 years ago. 10 years ago, I remember I was sitting at my desk and Glenn walked by my door in the offices, just walking down the hallway, and I wanted to talk to him. I was in youth ministry at the time. I didn't have a lot of crossover meetings and things with him in that moment, and I had a, you know, I'd heard something in a sermon, and I had some thoughts about it, and I just wanted to grab him. So while he's walking by, I just yelled, hey, like that, which I've learned, like, it's not what you do to your boss uh, as I've gotten older, but at the time, 10 years ago, I didn't, didn't know that. I was like, hey, come here for a second, and he comes walking into my office. He's like, yeah, what's... What's going on? Uh, and, and I looked at him and I said, well, I have a question for you. And he goes, sure, what is it? And then I realized I didn't have a question. I had a statement. And I didn't know how to phrase it into a question. So I just said the statement. And I said, I didn't like your sermon on Sunday. That's what I said. I've learned a lot of things in the last 10 years about how to talk to people, apparently. Uh, but I was still learning at that particular moment. I said, I didn't like your sermon on Sunday. And Glenn, just knowing Glenn, he just laughs, you know, and he's like, yeah, what, what was it that you didn't like? And by the way, that wasn't a question, <laughs> right? That's what he said. And, and uh, I said, well, you know, I, I had some frustrations with it. You see, at the time, we were going through this sermon series on the book of Genesis. Uh, and if you were here about 10 years ago-ish, you'll remember we were in this sermon series. We're like verse by verse, moment by moment. We were working all the way through the opening chapters of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 3, and unpacking all of these things. And Glenn was studying. We, we went through this for like a couple of months. This was not a short season of time or a short series. And in this, there were some really interesting things that he was teaching uh, that, that I was trying to wrap my head and my heart around. He talked about things like this, that when God created Adam in the garden, and by the way, this is in the Bible, but when God created Adam and he put him in the garden, that, that he allowed Adam to just name all the animals and that there was no rule or wrong or right for whatever the names that he gave him. And God just wanted to see what Adam would do because he wanted Adam to exercise the freedom that God had given him. And he talked about a word called dominion, using his dominion in all of this. And he also talked about this idea that we're all made in the image of God. And, and so we're supposed to live out of who God created us to be. And there's this beautiful kind of story and all of this stuff. And I didn't like any of that. I didn't at that particular point in time. I think in youth ministry, I was like, I'll teach my own series on Genesis because it wasn't a healthy thing. I know, a lot's changed since then and everything's, we've worked on some things. But, but I, I did at that particular time. And so I was just like, yeah, I don't, I didn't like what you taught on Sunday. And I said, I don't think we were, he, he walks into my office and said, I don't think we were placed on this earth simply to live our lives, trying to be people God made us to be and enjoy the things that he created. And he said, well, what do you think? And I said, well, I think we're supposed to live our lives in obedience and bring God glory. That's what I think. That's what I, I believe. And Glenn looked at me and he goes, well, yeah, I mean, sure. But what do you think it is that brings God glory? Like, don't, don't you think by becoming the person he actually made you to be and living in all the things he's created for you to live within that that, that would do it? Like, he, you would bring him glory? And I said, no. I was really forthright about this with him. I said, no, I think we bring God glory by living lives that are obedient to him because we are, are just wretched sinners. And, and what we do is we focus our lives on God. We commit ourselves to obedience with him and we take up our cross and we follow. And this is what we do. And Glenn said, well, Ryan, when you look at Genesis and even when you look at the kingdom of God as the way Jesus describes it, it, it feels like there's a little bit of difference in the life that you just described in the way that Jesus seems to describe those things. 
right? Even when you look at the Garden of Eden and what he created for us, that's what we've been talking about in Genesis. And I said, but Glenn, we're not in the Garden of Eden. We're sinful, broken people. There's a lot of broken stuff around us. And we're, we're not living in the Garden of Eden. And so I just don't understand why that's a thing. And Glenn replied, well, yeah, that's true. He goes, but again, when you read about the kingdom of God as Jesus talks about the New Testament and you look at what God created us to live in in the opening chapters of Genesis, it just is different. And then he looked at me, and I'll, I'll never forget this, what he said. He said, Ryan, what if what God really wants is for you to embrace the truth, for you that you are fully loved in Christ, and out of that to use your freedom and giftings to fully live your life out of who he created you to be? And I'll never forget my response. I said, that sounds entirely selfish. I did. I just looked at him, and I said, no, that sounds entirely selfish. And then Glenn responded back to me, and he said, I think that what you're going to find if you live that life, if you step into that, that it's not selfish. In fact, I think what you're going to find is that you have more in you to love other people than you currently do, believing that everybody's bad, that you're bad, and just trying to be obedient to please God. I think you're going to find that this plays out a little bit different. And he goes, after all, Ryan, who does Christ say that you are? And I rolled my eyes hard at him. I was like, come on. I know. You ever have that moment where somebody tells you the right theological answer that you know? There's, here, if you don't know this, there's a bunch of really beautiful things in the Bible about who Jesus says you are. I remember growing up, I had this like printed out list of who I am in Christ with all the chapters and references of all these amazing things that I'd read as an encouragement periodically. So I nodded my head and I was like, I know, but no. <laughs> you know, that's essentially what I liked. And he goes, well, it's the truth. <laughs> like it's, it is in there. Like it is what it is. And then Glenn looked at me and he said, you should try doing something just because God delights in you and has created you to be you. And in that freedom, just see where he takes you. And he goes, and you know what? I'd love to hear about what that's like for you. I'd love to continue this conversation with you if you have more time or something at another time or something like that. That'd be awesome. And then he walked out. And as he walked out, I just said one last word as though I needed to get the last word. And I said, I guess we can just agree to disagree. And he walked out. I know. You guys are like, how do you still work here? <laughs> I know. Right? I was like, I need, because I had this perspective that I needed to, like, I need to defend the things that I think are right. And like, I just had this, this whole deal. Now, do you want to know why I can remember that conversation from 10 years ago? Like it's yesterday. I mean, I can remember it vividly, clearly in my head. And I'll tell you why. It's because it messed me up. And when I say messed me up, I don't mean that in a bad way. It was one of those moments where it created a kind of tension in me. Have you ever found yourself in this place in life where the way you think about life, you've learned the rules, you've learned the things, you've learned how God works and what the Bible has to say and how these people interpret these verses and all of your life stands like a clean Jenga tower with all the blocks pushed in and then somebody walks along and they're like, but what about that block? And then they push it and you're like, don't touch the tower. It was like that moment for me where it's like something moved and something got pushed. And, and it's more than just it being a different opinion or a different perspective. The thing that I had a really hard time with is even though he walked out and I was like, we'll have to just agree to disagree. Internally, the thing that I, res that, that I experienced was that there was a part of what he was asking me that felt like there was truth in it. And like I wasn't willing to wrestle with it because it didn't align with the way that I was currently thinking about all of the things, about God, about me, about life. And so I kind of dug my heels in but inside, it had stirred something, and I began to ask a series of questions from that point. And you may be wondering, why, Ryan, why are you sharing this like, personal story about a conversation with you and Glenn from 10 years ago? But I really wanted to. And the reason why, it's not so much because I, I just, I mean, I want you to see my story so much. It, it's because I've come to realize, I think a lot of you all, or some of you at different moments in time, you find yourself sitting in this room, and you know what it's like to be me in that chair 
10 years ago. I think there's some of us in this room that at different times, and when I say I think, I get to have these conversations and talk about these moments and these tensions and these frustrations. Some of you, I, I know, just like me at my desk, you sit here week after week and you find yourself going, okay, so like I like this stuff and I get some of the things that we teach on, but like when are we going to talk about the hard stuff? I think some of us find ourselves thinking, when are we going to actually get it? Like, so when are we going to talk about sin and what's right and what's wrong and who's in and who's out? And when are we going to just stop like playing with things and just start saying the things? And, like, and, and I know that because I get asked that question quite a bit. There's this, this notion of like, when are we going to do this? Because you're frustrated because you have a certain belief about who God is and who we are and how this works and what ought to be happening here. So you feel those things. Imagine some of you sit here and you find yourself thinking, you know, we talk about love all the time. When are we talk about obedience and just bringing God glory and submitting your life and doing the things that he's called you to do? When's that going to occur? Or others of us are wondering when we're going to start telling people how to do right, to be right, so that they can be right with God, so that they can live right lives, so that we can do this thing. You know, there's just this energy in some of that. And it's because when you hear something, just like me at the desk, there's a part of you that, that wishes you had the opportunity to be like, hey, get in here, because I have a question about some of this stuff. I'm frustrated. Or I have a little bit of tension, like me that day in my office. It's because some of us have specific beliefs about how God works, how we work how he sees us, how we see ourselves, the ways we interpret scripture, and all of that creates tension sometimes, causes us to wrestle, right? Or wonder, is there something we're saying or not saying or avoiding or not avoiding as a church, and should we be? So you know what I realize? For me, I've had this unique privilege, and I really do consider it a privilege, to kind of grow within this space. I've been here for 15 years now, uh, and if you met me on day one of me working here, which some of you did, you know that it's probably a little bit different for who I am and the, just the person you now get to interact with now. And I'm the same person, but some things have changed along the way. But the privilege that I've had is I've watched the church journey around me and I've gotten a journey in it and a part of it in a way that shaped me in some ways. And I've had to wrestle and, and, and just really figure some things out and carry my own tensions and stuff. And I thought to myself, you know what would be really hard is if I was here today in this space right now, not just me, but even as one of you, I was just, if I was attending this church and I didn't understand how we got here. And I was looking going like, so some of this stuff though, I just like, what's missing or why isn't this happening? And I didn't understand the pieces and the steps along the way that led us to be this unique expression of a local church that is Casas here. And now, and I just thought as we go to end this series, I had a whole nother sermon that I wanted to teach. And yet there's a part of me that was like, I think I would like most importantly to just articulate some of the major things that have shaped us in the last 20 years that have led us to the places that we are now. Not so that I can convince anybody in this room of like, so who's coming with us? None of this. It's so that if you have not had the privilege of being a part of that, or you just haven't gotten to see those things, or maybe you didn't even get to have the conversation understand so that you could have a little clarity shed on some of those moments and see the heart of what this place is and, and the journey that we've been on. Because I believe there's a powerful unity in that. And I believe in, that God wants to do some really amazing things through us as a church. And so I'd love to do that. My hope today is this. If you love this church and you love who we are, you love what we teach, I'm going to guess the part of today is like, oh, that's awesome. I learned, maybe I, I went a little deeper on something. I learned something. Or you know what? Yeah, that's the reason why I love this place. And I'm, I'm, I'm proud to be a part of it. But if you're a person who holds a certain tension or in your own honesty, for whatever reasons, a whole host of reasons, like me. You struggle with these things at times, or you find yourself going, but, but why aren't we doing this? And when are we going to do that? I want to just articulate some of these things in hopes 
that you get to see it with a little more clarity. And if I'm really honest, I hope it becomes a part of the beautiful journey that I've gotten to experience along the way here too, as God shaped me and grown me along the way. So that's what I'm gonna do. And I broke it down into three things. There's way more than three things, but you don't wanna be here till tomorrow, so we'll just stick with three. And we'll process those. Um, but uh, I, here's what I'd love to do. So I said three key things that have shaped this place in a significant way and become a blessing to us as a church. And here's the first. And I'm gonna categorize it uh, this way. First one is Dallas Willard and the spiritual life. I'm gonna call it Dallas Willard and the spiritual life. These aren't like deep points. These are just ways to reference times in, in, in history. This is in the early 2000s. In the early 2000s, there was a guy named Dallas Willard. He was a theologian and a professor, and uh, he has since passed. That's why I used the word was. But he wrote a series of books. Highly recommend him as a writer. Um, but in the early 2000s, I believe it was actually in 1998, and then his book caught traction, he wrote this book called The Divine Conspiracy. I highly recommend that book. I'm gonna tell you it's not an easy read, but if you're willing to take your time and chew through it, it's a beautiful read. It's really, really good. Um, and so Glenn picked up this book and he read this in the early 2000s. This is before I ever started working here. I've only been here for about 15 years. And he started to read it. And the book asserts, Dallas Willard in this book essentially asserts that at the core of being a Christian, right, is learning to take on the heart of Christ and to bring as much heaven to earth as we possibly can by seeking uh, to participate in what the Bible calls the kingdom of God. That's, that's what he gets after, this, this phrase, this terminology called the kingdom of God, which is used again and again and again in your New Testament gospels. They, they say this, this was a really, there was a popular understanding even for what this would have been in, in ancient Judaism as people were all waiting for a Messiah to usher in the kingdom of God. Now, when Jesus arrives on the scene, it, Mark categorizes like this is his, the core of his message. This is the thing he began to travel around and preach. Here's, here's what it was this way. Mark chapter one, verse 15. Is, this is Jesus' words. It says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, I could spend an entire sermon unpacking a bunch of cool language stuff that exists in just this singular passage, but we have done that in other moments. So let me paraphrase it this way in a way that would resonate with this room. It would be like saying this, the time that you have been waiting for has arrived and the kingdom of God is for you right here and right now. Base your life on Jesus. That's that word repent. It's not a word about guilt. It's change of mind by way of, or change by way of the mind, which is just change what it is you base your life on. So base your life on Jesus and trust that who he is and the life he invites us to is really the good news that's what the gospel is, right? It just means quite simply the good news. At the core of Jesus' message was an invitation to embrace life with him and to participate in the kingdom of God as we live life here on this earth and as we will continue to life, live life for all eternity. At the core of Jesus' message was to embrace the fullness of life with him in our actual lives here and right now. And there's perhaps no greater passage that speaks to this idea or no greater section of scripture that speaks to the, what is the kingdom of God? And when Jesus speaks about it, what's he really after? What's he mean by all this? Then something called the Sermon on the Mount. This is found in, in Matthew chapter five. There's other places that detail segments and portions of this, but you see it in one lump sum, all in Matthew chapter five. And this is not just a couple of verses. This goes on for chapters as Jesus speaks again and again about describing what the kingdom of God looks like. And this is what Dallas Willard and the Divine Conspiracy began unpacking, the Sermon on the Mount. What does he mean by the kingdom of God? What's this really look like? 
Let me read part of it for you, not the divine conspiracy, the Sermon on the Mount, beginning at chapter five of Matthew, verse one. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This goes on. There, this is the beginning of what's called the Beatitudes in scripture. This goes on for several verses. And then it starts to roll into chapters and explanations and all kinds of things that come with all of this. Now for Glenn, and I know this is true of him. I've had, I can't tell you how many conversations with him about this. Along the way, as he was growing up, like me, like many of you, when you heard this passage taught, it was taught as like these, this is like a greater list of rules to follow. This is like a greater list of commands. You know, people were trying to follow the Old Testament law and it didn't go far enough. Like it, what we needed to do was, was, was work harder or try more. And, and here's why I say that. This is part of the body of scripture where it says, and if one of your eyes causes you to like lust or look upon, like gouge it out. If one of your hands causes you to sin, chop it off. Now, if we were all really just going, taking all of that literally, there'd be a lot of eyeless, handless people in here. And I would be preaching a very different type of sermon uh, on all of that. And yet that's what Jesus said. There's a bunch of things in here that when you apply them, it's like a rule above a rule. Like it seems really extreme if you paint it that way. Even the Beatitudes themselves. I remember hearing sermons at times growing up uh, and I know that this is true for Glenn, where somebody would teach, blessed are the poor in spirit. So we should seek to be poor in spirit so that we can be blessed. Blessed are those who mourn. We should seek to mourn because this is like this aspiration of life that we want to live after in the Sermon on the Mount. What Dallas Willard does in this book that became so impactful for us here at Casas is, is he looks and goes, you know, if you live everything out that he's saying the way that we think he's saying it, it creates a really different picture of the actual Jesus who was living and alive and walking around and engaging this way. Like, hey, there's some complexity here. So either Jesus is just kind of flipped and gone like, let's get real intense about everything or we're missing something. What might this actually mean? Right, if you look at this as a list of rules to follow, it doesn't seem to equate to the other moments where Jesus talks about what it is to have an abundance of life and the kind of grace and compassion and love that he continues to show people when he actually encounters them. And so instead, this became the following realization. And this realization became a very big deal here at this church. Is it, you know what the Sermon on the Mount is? Is it's looking at the kingdom of God and seeing Jesus breaking down the focus on rules and laws and asking us to grapple with changing our own hearts. And that's what you actually see when you read through that whole section of scripture is the Sermon on the Mount. You don't take one verse out of context. When you see the entire thing as one chunk of Jesus, you know, Jesus is just standing te teaching this group of people. What you realize is he keeps pointing again and again, saying you can do all of these things, but it's all a condition of the heart. And how do we change the heart? See, what Christ wants to do within each and every one of us is to actually transform our lives and our hearts. The kingdom of God doesn't occur by a transformation from the outside in. Better behavior can change your life, but it doesn't transform your heart, right? It can change the way your life looks and functions, but it doesn't transform your heart. But embracing the love of God through Christ and seeking to see and treat other people in the same way that Christ views and treats us, that will actually begin to mold and shape and transform you from the very inside out. And we decided as a church, and Glenn was just passionate about this. And if you've been here for any length of time and heard any sermons, you hear this come out again and again and again, where there's just this idea of we are looking for an inside out kind of transformation. That's what we're after. 
Looking to Jesus, taking on the heart of Christ, it transforms our hearts along the way and it starts to create the kingdom of God in us and around us. And we wanna be a part of that. It's huge. So that's the explanation, right? That, that's kind of what happened with that, with that book and that season and studying and pouring into the Sermon on the Mount through a season of time. But here's, here's how, what this meant for us as a church. It meant this. We came to embrace this truth that God doesn't wanna give us more rules to follow. Instead, he wants us to look to Jesus and see him as teaching us and transforming us into what it means to be fully alive. Not just someday, now, in this life that's yours here and now, through all eternity. We wanna create the kingdom of God. This was a big shift in this church, you guys. If you were here 20 years ago, you remember this starting to be a bigger shift and you could feel people trying to wrestle with some of this and how does this work and what about this? And, and, and is, what ended up happening is teaching and ministry began to focus less on the rules, on the right rules on how we ought to live. And it began to be, uh, on, in order to be right, and it began to focus more and more on partnering with Jesus to transform us from the inside out. And this is a big shift. So in the moments where in the past, we might've gotten up and we would've said, here's the sins in your life that aren't okay. And here's what you need to avoid. And here's the strategies to get out of those things. And here's the moral failure in our culture. Here's the things that are happening and why we need to do this or that or whatever these things are. Where in the past, maybe we would've, had, maybe we would've gotten up to teach those things. Instead, we began teaching on what it is to trust Jesus with things like our fear, our uncertainties, our insecurities, a whole host of, all the stuff that's inside us that leads us to do the things we don't want to do in the first place, that leads us to do the things that create all the havoc and things in our lives in the first place. Why? Because rather than just preach to change behavior or be a church that's trying to wrestle behavior to the ground, we want to change people from the inside out by having more and more people place the weight of their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for their actual lives. Because we aren't after better behaved people who come to look like what other people think Christians ought to look like. That's not, that's not the endeavor or the focus. Our goal is this. We want the love of Jesus Christ to permeate our hearts so that we can live as people who are fully alive in him now and forever. And we've gone so far as to say, that's what spiritual growth looks like. That's the endeavor. That's the path. That's discipleship. What does Jesus say in his last words of Matthew to those who are to his followers? He looks and he says, go therefore and what? Make disciples. This is at the heart of what it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. We're after this. This is a really big deal here in this church. This all shifted and began to shift about 20 years ago through a lot of study and a lot of conversation, a lot of things. So that's the first one. But I told you I'd give you three. And so let me take you now to the second one. The second one is this. We learned that the Bible doesn't start with Genesis 3. And if you, that doesn't make sense, it will eventually. Just hang with your uncertainty long enough to let me get there. We learned that the Bible doesn't start with Genesis chapter 3. This happens uh, 10 to 12 years ago, somewhere around there. This was at the very heart of what I was actually arguing about in my office that day with Glenn. Right? 10 years ago for me in, that, in my office that day where I'm like, hey, Get in here. It's, it's because I was wrestling with this very thing when we learned that the Bible doesn't start with Genesis chapter three, because for me, and I didn't even realize it at the time, but what I had built my understanding of mankind, my understanding of how God works, of what he wants, of all the things, as though Genesis one and two didn't exist. And I started with Genesis three. Again, I'll explain it in a moment, but let me illustrate how this played out. So in the summer of 2011, as I was the high school pastor here, and I got to take, it was really amazing, got to take a group of students to, to Africa 
uh, with a couple of adult volunteers, we partnered with uh, a missionary, you know, global worker in um, Zambia, who is uh, an aviator. And so what happened, they had a bunch of planes and a hangar, and they would essentially fly supplies into places that were unsafe to, to take the drive because it was either too long or the roads weren't great or there just wasn't access. And so whether it was medical supplies or food or different things, uh, we'd partner and they'd, they'd load these, these little biplanes up and they'd fly them out into remote villages. So I got to take a group of students, a group of adult volunteers to go, you know, be a part of some of this stuff. And during the day, we do construction work on the hangar and we were painting things and helping out with stuff. And then in the early afternoon, all the kids from the surrounding villages would come pouring in to this place. I mean, like hundreds of kids. And then we'd do like a Bible study in a kid's class and play games and just run around and run amok. It was really fun. And our, kids, our students did an amazing job. Now, one particular, you know, mid-afternoon moment, uh, they're teaching this Bible lesson, and one of our students is sitting down with all, this, with all these kids, like just all around her. One of the kids moves over and just crawls and gets in her lap. She's sitting cross-legged, and this little girl just comes over and crawls and sits in her lap. It's like this really beautiful picture, but I watched the student begin to recoil. And not because this is a bad student. What, had, what was going on here is this particular child who crawled into her lap well, she hadn't been bathed in a very, very long time and the body odor coming off of her wasn't mild. It was thick, it was a lot. And so as the student's just sitting in her lap, this, or this child sitting in the student's lap, the student's not trying to deal with it. And then I also noticed that this child's hair, and this was really visible, was just covered in lice. And so I'm watching the student recoil, right? Just trying to figure out what to do with that. So that moment comes and goes. Later that evening, we're all gathered together and you just process the day. What was this day like for you? How was this? That particular student shares with me and the entire group. She goes, I just felt so conflicted today. There's this little girl and I know she just wanted someone to like hold her, somebody to be close with her, but, but I just felt really bad because I was like recoiling from her because she smelled so bad and she had like lice and can somebody check my hair? You know, like that kind of moment as is, is we're processing this. Now, I was the youth pastor at the time, so I thought, you know what, this seems like a great opportunity to use this as a metaphor and analogy for God and use this as a teachable moment. So I looked at the students who were gathered with me there, this, that group, and I said, isn't that though how God experiences us? I said, you know, he, he smells the stench of our sin and he sees the grossness of our brokenness and, all, and who we are and all, of those, and all of that stuff. Like, he understands our condition, all those things, and yet he's willing to love us. So what does that mean for us? That's what I share. I thought that was a great thing. Some of you are recoiling. Some of you are leaning in. I thought it was a great thing. The next morning, I, was, I wake up and the missionary who we were partnering with, he comes over and he's like, so how was last night? How were the students? And, and you know, what'd you guys talk about? And I share this story and here's kind of what we ended up talking about. And then he gets weirdly quiet for a moment. And he looks at me with this puzzled expression and he exhales and he says, Ryan, I think you're confusing the love of God with pity. And I didn't understand what he meant, but I didn't want to just be like, I don't get what you're saying. And so I, I was just like, oh yeah, you know. And he said, you know, if you see those kids as dirty and gross, but they need love, you know, they're dirty and gross, but who need love? He said, you'll only give them pity. And he said, and pity's not going to translate in the end to them as love. In fact, all it's going to do is make them either feel embarrassed or heap a kind of shame on them or make them feel a little, little less than you guys. And that's not love. And then he looked at me and he said, they are actually made in his image and God delights in them because he loves them. You should think about it. And I said, I'll think about that today. And he goes, no, you should just think about that in general. And then he just walked off. 
You know, that conversation on that particular day, coupled with that conversation that day 10 years ago with Glenn in my office, were like two different moments where people were looking at me going, Ryan, you can't build your theology starting with Genesis 3, or it gets weird, or you miss love, or it gets wonky a lot. Like it just, it, it doesn't work in the way that we go about living our actual lives. Now, some of you are going, what do you mean when you say building your theology out of Genesis 3? Let me explain. The first book of the Bible is the book of Genesis. There are three chapters that are really unique in the first book, in the first part of that. The first chapter is the creation story and God creating the world and God creating man. The second one is kind of an additional creation story, but really filling out that creation in different things. And then you get to the third chapter and that becomes the infamous chapter where you have Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden and they disobey God and sin enters the world for the first time and everything blows up, right? That's Genesis three. And so what I had been doing is I had been looking going, that my life and my identity and who God is and how God sees each and every one of us, it starts in that chapter when sin happens and everything's bad and broken and people are hiding in bushes and, and you know, all the stuff that comes out of that particular moment. And you know what Glenn was trying to remind me of and what this particular worker in Africa was trying to remind me of is that there are two very beautiful, very important chapters that occur before that that inform what God was creating and inform who we are and that this becomes absolutely essential and has become huge for us as a church. See, if your theology with God, I'll explain some of it, but if your theology with God starts in Genesis chapter three, then it's really easy to end up building a belief about you and other people that we are bad and everything is wrong and we just need to suppress, and that you can't, our own desires and our own things are terrible and all of that needs to be suppressed as we just focus on doing what God wants us to do. It's easy to do that. It, if you start there, but if you open yourself up beyond that, what you find is that God actually creates people with creativity and passions and desires and different things and that those things exist. And it doesn't actually reference that all of that becomes skewed. Genesis chapter one, verse 27. This is a big one in one of the previous chapters. If you go back to Genesis chapter one, you read this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We're told that mankind is made in the image of God. And this is a huge deal. Turn to the person next to you, look him in the eye and say, you are made in the image of God. Make it weird. If it got weird, I'm cool with it. Because you need to hear that. We need to know that more. We need to hear that more. That is a beautiful thing. You are, you're made in the very image of God. And you know what? There's no scripture or passage that ever tells you, and the image was lost and the image went away. And God just got rid of the image or mankind destroyed the image. There's no passage that ever taught. That is intact in you. And you know that that's created in you, whether you believe a thing or not, whether you have done a thing or not. So if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you're made in the image of God. If you do believe in Jesus Christ, you're made in the image of God. Some of you are going, but what if you've like done some things? And I'd be like, even if you sin. And some of you would be like, but what sin? And I'd say any sin. It doesn't matter. What's true here is that no matter what, not because of you, but because it's what God did, you are made in his image. There is a part of who you are that is putting him on display that bears some aspect of his image of his goodness always, no matter what, because he made you that way. It's just part of how you're created. You get this when you read through Genesis chapter one. Some of you are going, but don't we sin? Yeah, we do. Of course you do. Isn't there brokenness? Yeah, like lift your head up and look around. 
Yes, there's brokenness and there's things that are jacked up and messed up. There's even things inside of each of us at times that feel a little awry, a little broken in moments, right? We, we feel these things. But it's not the whole story and that's important to know. It's not dismissive of those things. It's just not the whole story. And that is massively important and has become massively important for us as a church. Each of us should know, we ought to know this, that within all of us, there are fears and insecurities and tensions and all kind of pride and all kinds of things that just can wreak havoc and create sinful behaviors in our lives. And we should know those things because we don't want to allow them to get into the driver's seat of our life and wreck a bunch of havoc. Those, that's why... You should know that that does exist within you, but you should also know that at the very same time, each of you were also created with good and beautiful desires, strengths and perspectives that were placed within you, placed within each and every one of us, that God has made you with and that he desires for you out of the person he created you to be. So it's not one or it's not the other. All of that complexity is residing in the chair you currently occupied in a person called you. It's not the whole story. It's all of that wedged in there together. And what we came to see is that when you start to look at Genesis chapter one, you see a bigger, more complex picture of people. It starts to open things up in a way where people are capable of terrible things and sin and all kinds of stuff, but they're also capable of putting God on display in good things in incredible ways and that all of that exists in all of us all the time. And what we believe is that as you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, more and more of that image comes out as he transforms our heart more and more into his likeness as we align who we are to the person that God created us to be. We give it freedom. We let it reign. We stop contending for all these different things and that that becomes a beautiful thing and it's a gift you have to give to this world. That started to shift about 10 years ago. It took me a little longer. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter two, there's something really beautiful too. Verse 19, it says, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. That's in the Bible, Genesis chapter two. I love that. What makes this verse so significant is that it puts on display this idea that God created all of these things and then he created mankind and he goes, I created this, this whole garden, this world for, for people to live in and you know what? I want them to use their dominion, them to use their freedom and them to use their creativity and God says, go name the animals and what God was not was a helicopter parent. A lot of us think of God this way. We do. We can't help it maybe because of just how we've experienced things and we just do where we almost think like, okay, so God is saying like, go make the choice and we're like, okay and then we're like, I'm gonna choose right. So I'm going to go to the right. And it's like God's going, uh, 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 no, no. And you're like, oh, okay, sorry, sorry. Okay, so I'm going to choose to go to the left. And it's like there's somebody, God's hovering over, going, no, uh, mm, no, not that one either. Uh-uh, no, mm, this one, this one. And you're like, okay, I choose center. And then God's like, you got it. And that's not how he works. That's a helicopter parent. That's not God. The way that God works is he's in this stuff with us. We are indwelt by Christ, right? We, are, we have the Holy Spirit as our helper and as our guide, and he partners with our passions and things that he created us with to shape our lives and mold. We have this incredible kind of freedom that we get to live out of, and we see this in the book of Genesis. So why is all of this significant to us as a church? And if you're going, I feel like I need to learn more about that. We have done entire series on that. You can find that in, our, in, like in YouTube, in a podcast and things. Uh, on a couple of different occasions because it's important. But here's the thing. Before this world ever gets jacked up, a story starts to get told about what God actually wanted in the garden. And each step of the way, we see him say, 
and he saw that it was good, as if God is saying, I created what I wanted to create and I approve this message. This is what I want. And then when Jesus comes along and he says, and the kingdom of God is here, it is near, it is at hand, it is among you, in your midst. When Jesus comes to say these things, it's as though he's looking going, through me, put your faith in me and we'll create Eden all over again. Let's go back to the garden because you can. And so our hearts aren't just to squash and fight against sin. We actually trust in Christ's sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection to do that. And we believe that, that he did a sufficient job in that and we should put our faith in him for it. But what we have begun to focus our time on here, what I've seen in the last 10 years is that we've shifted some of our thinking and teaching in a way of, of teaching people to see themselves as made in God's image, to spend less time trying to conquer sin, believing that Jesus does more, work, more of that work on the cross and to begin pointing people to put their faith in Christ and to figure out what he wants to do in them and where he wants to lead them. And do you know what our belief is? Is that if Jesus is leading that enterprise, sin becomes less and less of an issue. And so we keep pointing in that direction. We keep speaking to these things because of where we've come from. You know what we found along the way? Is that freedom is a really scary thing for religious people. I have, through countless conversations, freedom's a really scary thing for people who are part of any religion. I think a lot of times we turn to religion because it's supposed to give us the certainty and security so that we don't have to ask questions anymore. And then we can just know that this is right and so I'm good and this is how this works. Do you know in Christianity, you have a kind of certainty and security that is in Jesus. You can trust him, he'll hold you, you have this, but you don't know what your next five minutes is gonna be. You don't know what your life a year from now is gonna look like. You don't know how any of this stuff's gonna play out. We live by what? Faith. Faith, which by the way, isn't just because of Jesus. It's been true all along. Romans tells us that that's Abraham had righteousness accredited to him because he what? Was living by faith. It's been the path and the process from the very beginning. This is who we are. We believe the story starts with a good God who creates a good garden and the love of Jesus gets to make that reality again as we pursue and live out of who we were created to be. This runs deep in this place. You hear this a lot. Gets woven into a lot of different things. And I just wanted you to know how we got here. Third thing is this. We came to realize that the fruits of the Spirit aren't aspirational. This is a bigger one, and this is probably the last five to six years here. We came to realize that the fruits of the Spirit aren't aspirational. You know, the person that was arguing with Glenn that day in his office, which is me, but it's just a little bit different than the person who's probably standing in front of you talking now. Don't get me wrong, I'm the same person. But so much has changed in so much of this stuff along the way. You see, 10 years ago, I was a person who went to a Bible college because I had a moment when I was about 19 years old that I felt completely ignorant in faith, walked away from that, and decided that I wanted to be an atheist. And I just felt like I was living a lie. And I felt like God pulled me back into this stuff. And then I thought to myself, I never want to be ignorant again. I want to know what's right and I want to know what's true so I can go study that and teach people so that they can follow in the same deal. You know what I mean? And, and it was just like, I don't want to ever be ignorant again. So I went to a Bible school to study you know, Bible and theology, and that's my degree with a focus on like original languages because I want to see what it actually said. <laughs> like I don't want to trust anybody else. I want to know what God wants us to do so I can teach other people to do the same things. And so what I was passionate about at that point in youth ministry, which is where I was, was I would teach students that if they would just take the Bible more seriously and just take the relationship with God more seriously, if they would obey God, if they follow his commands, if they'd deny the bad parts of themselves, deny themselves and bring him glory as they, you know, discipline themselves to follow him, that this would lead a, to a good life. Some of you guys are like, that sounds heavy. It was. 
If I'm honest, I actually think I did a decent job of conveying that particular message, trying to teach others to do the same thing. I put my heart and time and energy into it. But you know, ever have that moment where you step back and you just take a larger perspective on life and you go, is that creating the thing that I said it would? Deeper question, is that creating a thing that God said it would create, living my faith and perspective out this way? Because if I was honest, the thing that I saw around me was heaviness. And Christianity felt like a burden to carry. It didn't feel like his yoke was easy and his burden was light. And I constantly was confusing guilt with, and conviction with real spirituality, as though the most spiritual thing I could feel was when I felt really guilty about something that I ought to change. And I was like, that's where God's close. Isn't that interesting? But I watch students around me and adult leaders and people and volunteers around me journey in that same process and feel that same thing. You know, in the book of Galatians, it tells us that if we live by faith in Jesus Christ and we walk by the Spirit, it says that we have no need for the law and that if we, if we live that and place our faith in him, stand in his love and in his grace and we walk in his spirit, it says that we'll be like a tree that produces this kind of fruit. This is what we'll see in our actual lives. Galatians chapter five, beginning at verse 22, it says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. See, when you live your life as a religious rule follower, if that's the way you're approaching spirituality, you almost always have to reinterpret that passage to justify the fruit that you see in your life, right? For me, I could have looked back at that area of my own life and looked and said, you know, the fruit of the Spirit is burden. Fruit of the Spirit is conviction. The fruit of the Spirit is certainty and judgment. The fruit of the Spirit is self-condemnation or endless striving or a hope that this will get better someday simply because it's just not right now and doesn't seem like it's gonna change anytime soon. There was this, this thing that, that you have to kind of reinterpret it, but that's not what Galatians 5 actually says. That's not what Paul's telling us. So what I used to do, and what many of you have probably heard other people do at the time, I was in good company, is you teach through these things as aspirational. So you're like, so who needs more peace in their life? So go create, so go seek peace here and go pursue this here. Or who needs, you, like, are you loving? Go be more loving. So I want you to try three steps towards loving other people in a better way. Or you'll have some kind of message taught that way. But that's not what Paul's actually doing. What Paul isn't saying is looking at a tree and going, hey, if it's a lemon tree, try harder to build an orange. He's not saying, hey, if you're an orange tree, fight to be a lime, right? We have citrus trees around here. I think they're immensely confusing because they all look the same to me. I'm sure some of you, they seem different. The only way that I can ever tell them apart is when I look and I'm like, hey, grapefruits, that's a grapefruit tree. That's what that one is. Tangelo, orange, lime, lemon, because of the, what the fruit produces. The illustration the Bible's constantly getting at when it speaks about fruit especially when it's not the fruit of man, but what the fruit of the spirit is. What he's saying is if you are a plant, if you're a tree that is rooted in faith in Jesus Christ and walking in the spirit, then the fruit you see on that tree looks like this. So this isn't a do better moment. This isn't for you to be like, or me to be like, we just need to buckle down and try harder. It's not you that creates it. This is that moment where it's saying, look at the tree and see the evidence of what you're standing. And if you don't see it, ask yourself some really good questions along the way. You know, we've become committed to that. I know that for Glenn, this is a huge deal. For me, this is a massive deal. At some point in time, just wanting to look at the fruit that's actually being produced in not only our lives, but the thing that we're leading and saying, is this what Jesus spoke of? Is this, is this reminiscent of what the Holy Spirit seems to produce 
in us as we seek the fruits of the Spirit, as we seek to see these things. It's not aspiring, trying harder to bear that fruit. It's letting go of that and actually placing the full weight of our trust in his love and in his grace and saying, Holy Spirit, I don't have all the rules. I don't know all the things. Where will you lead me? And I trust that you're my helper to guide in this as I anchor myself in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, if you want to know you're on the right track, then pay attention to the kind of fruit you produce. So here's the thing that we've started to do with that. If it doesn't start with love, if we don't see that fruit being produced, then we have to ask ourselves some questions. It's the first one on the list. In Greek, when you have the first thing that's listed, everything else actually becomes like a, an illustration of that. So love becomes the biggest priority in which all the other things are exemplary of it. If it's all burden and no joy, we've got to wrestle with some theology. We've got to wrestle with some practice. We've got to ask ourselves some questions. If the fruit of our life, live for Christ, isn't producing these things, then we owe it to ourselves to circle back and to let go of what holds us down and grab a hold of walking back out with the Spirit, trusting and anchoring ourselves in the person of Jesus as we see where he takes us. And friends, for me, and I know this is true of Glenn as well, I think there's been a whole series of questions about what is this honestly producing? What's the good piece here? And what, what, what can we do to more honestly walk with Jesus in this that's become a really beautiful thing? You know what's fascinating is over all of this time, I found that I don't think I'm working as hard at all of this as I used to. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Life is still tough and there's still a bunch of things. I just don't know that I'm like, I've got to keep going and trying and fighting and clawing my way through all of this spirituality stuff. I was fighting so hard to do that. You know what's weird? I love Jesus more now than I ever have in my life. It's like nonsensical too. I just think he's beautiful. I do. I think he's a fantastic individual in the first century and I think he's a fantastic son of God always. And I just want to model my heart and my life after him. I want him to be my rabbi. I, I see who he was and the way he existed in this world. And it seems so transformative that there's just a part where I'm like heart wide open being like, yeah, do your thing. Like where you want to go? And, and I want to see what that looks like. And I still find myself struggling and I still find myself having desires and things that occasionally I'm like, is this God or is this the spirit? But I don't feel like I'm abandoned to do that. I have his helper with me to walk by the Spirit, and I'm anchored in Christ who resides within me. As I get to choose what it is to live by faith, and the spiritual life has become a beautiful thing, and it no longer feels like something I need to condemn you to do. It just feels like an invitation to life. You don't have to carry all of those things in the same way. You just get to live in the Spirit, and my hope is that each and every one of us become like a tree that produce those fruits in our lives, because the world needs a taste of something good and real, not just something right. And that's the thing that I think we've become. I love that we are a church who isn't just after being right, but have become in pursuit of what it is to be honest and true and real to these things. You know what I love? That this isn't just the journey that I see. One of the most encouraging things about working here over time is I've watched you on the same journey. And I've seen this unfold in your lives. I've seen the beautiful ways that you have come to love Jesus. I see the honest ways that you're pursuing what it means for you to be the unique creation that is the image of God before you and you're not just settling for cookie cutter stuff. And that's weird sometimes because we're all a little weird, but it's amazing. And I love it and I'm so excited to see what God does through it. I love the way you reach out to and love one another. And do you know what I really love? I think this is so cool. I see more people coming to this church who have said, I never want to have anything to do with church again, and I don't like religion at all, but I'm here, and I always don't have the heart to be like, you know this is a church, right? But it's become this really beautiful thing where I think what people are experiencing is there's this sense that we're not just after religious principle, we're after something real with Jesus here. And so in that regard, I love where we've been, and I love where we are, because I love who we've become. 
So as we step into this August into a new ministry season, I just wanna tell you, keep going. Keep loving people this way. Keep pursuing the heart of Christ for yourself. Keep creating something honest and authentic. You are an inspiring group of individuals called Casas Church, and I'm so excited excited to be a part of this. I know Glenn is too. Every single leader around here is, and I'm excited to see what God does through each of us in the coming year. Let's pray. God, we come before you, and we thank you for today. We do. God, I just thank you for all the unique human beings that are in this room. I thank you for the story that you have in each of our lives. I thank you for the journey that you have brought us on. Lord, if some of us are wrestling with all of this, give us friends to have good conversations with who point us to you. Lord, if for those of us that, that have been on this journey, I pray for encouragement, Lord, and just faith, trust, and hope, and all of the good things. Lord, I pray the blessing. And God, as we step into this next year, this next season, we just wanna go where you take us, Lord. We wanna walk by faith. And so in the places we struggle with that, help us, Lord. Help us to find that sense of confidence to stand in you and walk by the Spirit. We love you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.